Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and be finding your place with me in the fourth chapter of Exodus. If you're brand new this morning, we've been walking through these early chapters going through the book of Exodus over the last couple of months. And we've been in Exodus chapters 3 and 4 for a few weeks, which is a passage of Scripture that deals with the call of Moses. And while you're turning there, you're more than likely you're familiar with the name John R.W. Stott. John Stott was one of the most prolific writers and really premier theologians of the last 100 years. And, and really there's no telling how many Christians around the world have benefited from his book, Basic Christianity, which I believe was first published in 1958, but it's just an overall introduction to the Christian faith. Well, Dr. Stott died in 2011, and it was reported that his last little bit of advice to his assistant was simply this, do the hard thing. It's one of the last things that, that John Stott said. He believed that choosing the easy road, uh, the road most taken, choosing the path, the path of least resistance in life could only end in mediocrity. Uh, even if it comes with the accolade of the crowd. I read that this week, and I couldn't help but see that quote in reference to the life of Moses. The easiest thing for him to have done would have been to remain in Midian. I mean, after all, uh, he had settled down. Uh, he had gotten married. He had a family. He was employed by his father-in-law in the family business of shepherding, and his life that had been in Egypt was well in his rearview mirror. It was well into his past. But the call of God that was placed upon his life involved him returning to Egypt of all places. And so there at the burning bush, God makes it known to Moses that he wanted him to lead the Israelites up out of Egypt, out of their bondage, and into the land that he had long since promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And so this would be no easy task. This is perhaps the reason why Moses is so very reluctant and hesitant at first. And we've seen in chapters 3 and 4 how he just came up with so many excuses as to why he really was the wrong man for the job. He expresses an overall insecurity in his calling. He claims the impossibility of his success. He doesn't believe that the people will listen to him or receive him or hear a word that he has to say. He then claims inadequacy in his giftedness, doesn't see himself as being eloquent enough. Well, God confronts Moses with each of his excuses, and, and Moses learns that there is no sufficient excuse when you're in the presence of the great I am. And yet in the case of Moses, God called into one of the greatest leadership tasks in history a man who really didn't want to be a leader at all. He resisted it as long as he could. And, and he's a man who, even according to Numbers chapter 11, still continued to feel inadequate for the task even after he had been at it for a while. And strange as it might sound to you and me, calling such individuals is God's preferred way of doing things. He always seems to call the people who seem to be the most least likely candidate for the job. Uh, people who want to be le leaders out of a desire for status or accolade or power. They always make bad leaders. 
But God is looking for someone who will humble himself before God, who will look to God for direction, someone who will walk with God. Yes, God's calling Moses to lead the Israelites, but beyond that, God is calling Moses to walk with him. And so Moses is going to have to live his life on the go with God. And that's what I want to speak from that subject this morning, what it means to live your life on the go with God. You know that life involves uh, a balance of waiting and a balance of walking and working, a balance of being still, a balance of being on the move. And often there are times when you feel like you're on the sidelines, and then there are other times you feel like you're in the thick of battle. Well, Moses has been in a place of obscurity for the past 40 years. By the time you get to this fourth chapter, he's been in a holding pattern. He's still before God as God is calling there at the burning bush. He's in the presence of God as a worshiper. And it's from that divine encounter that Moses is going to emerge as a faithful witness. A man who's going to be sent out on mission. God has drawn him in close so that Moses can be sent out with purpose and sent out on a mission. So I want to begin reading this morning in in verse 18. We'll read through the end of the chapter. And now I'll be honest, this is one of the most bizarre passages, really, in the entire book of Exodus, if not the entire Old Testament. And and you'll see why in just a moment, because it deals with a, a puzzling event that happens in Moses' life. But I really believe that it's important that you understand uh, it fills in the gaps between Moses' call at the burning bush and his work uh, as he is there in Egypt by the time we get into the fifth chapter. So it's an important passage, especially as it relates to transition in Moses' life. Notice verse 18 says that Moses, he went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. By the way, notice, notice it's Moses, his wife, and his sons. We know from chapter 18 of Exodus that uh, Moses, his sons, his oldest is Gershom, and his youngest son is named Eliezer. So Moses takes Zipporah, his sons Gershom and Eliezer. He has them ride on a donkey and goes back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son." At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And so he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him 
And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. On the go with God. Here we see Moses as he's being obedient now to the call of God that's been placed upon his life to go into Egypt. Now, you know that the story of the Bible is largely a story of a God who is on the move. He's a God who's at work to bring glory to himself in the salvation of sinners. Uh, The word go occurs 16 times in chapters 3 and 4, and eight of those times it's found right here in these verses that we've read. So the idea is after his initial hesitation, Moses will be on the go with God. He cannot remain where he is in Midian and still be obedient to the God that has called him. Now, you know there's a time and a place for us to be still in the Christian life. Uh, There's a time for us to worship. There's a time for us to recharge, a time to refocus. But folks, it's always so that we can keep going forward, keep pressing toward the finish line. Uh, The Christian life is not one of stagnation. The the scripture does say, be still and know that I'm God, but it doesn't say, be stagnant and know that I am God. No, we get still in the presence of God so that we can always be on the go with God, so that we can press toward the goal. That's what the apostle Paul said anyway. In Philippians chapter three, he said, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, Paul says, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Which means that the Christian life is not stagnant, but it's active. Uh, We're called to a life of movement. And yet, there often seems to be this inertia that characterizes us. I don't know if that's true of you, but I can tell you it's true of me. You know what inertia is? It's that property of matter by which it continues in a state of rest unless it's acted upon by some external force. Well, had it not been for the external call of God on his life, Moses would have remained right where he was in Midian. But he came to understand, however, that he had to live his life on the go with God. And why is that the case? Well, because God is on the move. God is at work in the world around us, and you and I are called to join him where he is working. Now, we learn from this passage at least three important truths about what it means to be on the go with God. So notice, first of all, uh, I learned from this passage that obedience to God demands that we do the hard thing. You know, if you're going to be on the move with God, if you're gonna walk with God, then obedience to him will demand that at some point, at multiple points in your life, you're going to have to do the hard thing. What's the hard thing for Moses? Well, notice verse 18 says that he's going to his father-in-law with the news that he's got to go back to Egypt. Uh, He's communicating to his family the fact that God has called him to go back to Egypt. 
So Moses is finding out that those who walk with God, they're going to have to go against the grain of culture. They're going to have to oftentimes do hard things that are well within the will of God. This is what obedience would require of God's servant. And so Moses is having to do the hard thing. Now notice he's doing the hard thing in the area of relationships. After he receives this call from God, the first thing that he does is approach his father-in-law with this formal request to leave and and go to Egypt. Uh, Really, it was a sign of respect because Jethro was the head of the family that Moses had married into. And and notice he doesn't give all of the details to his father-in-law up front. He asked for his blessing to go back to Egypt to do a welfare check on the people of Israel, but there's no mention of the burning bush. I kind of wonder how that would have been, by the way, if he would have went up to Jethro and said, Pop, I got to tell you, you know, I've got to take your daughter and your grandchildren because a bush told me to, a burning bush. Kind of wonder how that might have went for Moses at that point. But, But notice he's just simply saying, I've got to go do a welfare check on my fellow Hebrews. And he's asking for his father-in-law's blessing. So again, this kind of thing has happened more than once where the call of God has been laid upon someone's life. And oftentimes that's prompted misunderstanding and argument even within the family. Now, wonderfully, Jethro says go in peace. He's supportive of Moses in this, but that's not always been the case. The fact of the matter is not everyone in your family or in your network of relationships will understand the divine call that has been laid upon your life. You know, the gospel has divided more than one family throughout redemptive history. Not everybody in our family, not everyone in our circle of influence will share our enthusiasm for obedience to God. And yet Jesus said that following him demands that we hold family and friendships and relationships all in their proper perspective. You know, Jesus had some hard things to say about this. For example, Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus said, if anyone come to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I've often read that and I've wondered, what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that I'm, I'm not to love my family anymore if, if I want to follow Jesus? Does that mean I have to hate my family in a literal sense in order for me to be a Christian? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, listen to this. Jesus is saying that our love and our devotion to him and the calling that he has placed upon our lives, it's to be such a priority that all lesser loves look like hate in comparison. That's what he's saying. It's the kind of devotion that leads to division where supreme love for him is not shared within the context of a family. If there's a wife who has a supreme love and devotion for Jesus Christ in her family, but the husband does not share that same love and devotion to Christ, that's going to lead to friction in the home, isn't it? Especially in the area of children, in the area of of, of what to do on the weekends. Whether or not church is going to be a priority in the life of the family. Listen, more than one family has been put in this, this position. Jesus says where ultimate love and loyalty is not held uh, for me in one's heart, that's going to produce division at some point in your relationships. 
Jesus said this in John 12, whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The idea is we're going to be called upon to make choices in this world, but oftentimes it's going to look as if we hate our family. We hate our family in the sense of caring for their well-being. It doesn't make sense when the world looks at it. And when unbelief looks at it, someone would say, why in the world would you do something like that? Why in the world would you, would you risk it all? And you say, it's because of the call of God that's been laid upon my life and the love that I have for Jesus Christ. By the way, isn't it amazing that this language is often applied to us by the world when we can't go along with the world and what the world wants to celebrate? Take the, the player for the Philadelphia Flyers right now, the hockey team. You've seen the, the whole you know, conflict that was sort of swirling around this hockey player's refusal to wear the pride logo on the jersey that the rest of the team was sharing. And he said he couldn't do that because his faith would not allow him to do that, his conviction. And so, man, the rest of the world just would go after the guy. How dare you be full of such hate? And to the world, it looked like hate, but in his heart, it's love and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said, don't think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring division. I came to bring a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus said a person's enemies will be those in his own household. And whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's what Jesus is saying here when he's referring to ultimate love and devotion for his sake. Moses is tasting a little bit of this. And by God's grace, he's got a supportive family in his corner. Jethro tells Moses, you go in peace. And so he's going to be obedient to the call of God that's placed upon his life, and he has his family's blessing. But, but at times, folks, the call of God will demand that we have to do hard things in the area of relationships. And then notice something else for Moses. This is a hard thing in the area of reassurances. You, you look at verse 19, the scripture says that the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Which, by the way, one of the, one of the big hesitations that Moses had for not wanting to go back to Egypt was the fact that so many people were mad at him in Egypt. And so many people wanted him dead in Egypt. He, he fled Egypt 40 years before this under a sentence of death. Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household were looking to kill Moses. And now God is calling Moses to go back to this very place where so much strife was stirred up against me. This didn't seem to make sense to Moses. And so the return there would be a hard thing, but notice it's after Moses has submitted to the call of God to go that God gives him some much needed reassurance. And pay attention to the fact that Moses has already submitted to God's will at this point when that reassurance comes. And it means that he's learning that commitment comes first and confirmation comes second. We often want that to be reversed in our own life. Before we'll commit to anything, we want confirmation that everything's going to be all right. But that's not how it works when you're walking with God. 
That's not what walking by faith means. Sometimes you've got to step out into the water of faith before you'll ever see the Lord part those waters. Joshua chapter 3, great illustration of this. When, when, when Joshua's leading the people into the promised land, it's, it's an amazing thing. As they're about to cross Jordan, God has the leaders of the people go before the people, and it's only as their feet touch the water at the edge of the Jordan that the water stops and, and they're able to pass on through. Sometimes life is a lot like that. You don't know which way is forward. And, and, and you want confirmation. You want reassurance. Well, here's what you need to do. You need to obey the last thing that God told you to do and then watch what he tells you to do next. And oftentimes reassurance comes that way in our own life. And so Moses says, I'm going to go. And he starts the journey. He tells his father-in-law, I've got to go. And notice that there's some reassurance that comes his way from the Lord, that he's well within the call of God and the will of God in his life. So he's doing the hard thing in the area of relationships, doing the hard thing in the area of reassurances. And then notice that he's doing the hard thing in the area of responsibilities. Uh, what is it that he's going to have to do once he gets to Egypt? Well, God is clear here and tells him that he's to confront Pharaoh with a very difficult truth. Uh, you get into verse 20 and verse 21, and, 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 and notice that God says, here's what you need to do once you get to Pharaoh. You need to tell him to let my people go. But know this, I'm going to harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That is, Moses, I'm calling you to a task, and, and, and Pharaoh is not going to go along with you. He's not going to respond, but you're going to preach. He's not going to respond. You're going to be excited and enthusiastic, but he's not going to share your enthusiasm. And so that kind of rejection is a hard pill to swallow. And then the icing on the cake, verse 22, here's what you need to say to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I'm saying to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, can you imagine? You're, you're a shepherd living in the back country the last 40 years. You're timid. You're meek. You're already sensing your own inadequacy for this task, but God's saying, I want you to go up to the most powerful man in the land at the time, and I want you to tell him that if he does not let my firstborn son go, Israel, then I'm going to kill his firstborn son. I think you'd have heard my knees knocking. So it's a hard message to deliver. But folks, here's the point. Obedience to God demands that we do those hard things that are within his will for our lives. And there's no way around it. And so just to make some application here for just a moment, for some of you, the hard thing may be relational. Uh, there may be something relational that you have to do. It's a hard thing. But obedience to God in your life at this point demands that you may have a hard conversation with someone that you love. You may have to make a decision. Some of you may have children and grandchildren. God's placing his calling upon their life to go to some remote place on earth and preach the gospel to serve as vocational missionaries. That's a hard thing for you to want to let them go, but obedience to God and the will of God might demand that you have to do that. So for some of us, the hard thing might be relational. For others, the hard thing might be financial. Am I going to obey God? with my bottom line? 
Am I going to give even when it doesn't make sense? When I have an opportunity, if there's an opportunity for me to open up my home and do foster care, adoption, if God so leads in that direction, am I willing to do that even if it's the hard thing? For others of you, the hard thing might be physical. You're grappling with some type of diagnosis, wrestling with some type of disease. You're dealing with some type of painful loss. I know at least several of you right now in the room who are walking through seasons of loss, and that's a hard thing. And that's a hard thing, but you need to know you're not alone in the midst of that hard thing. Because the God who's calling Moses is the God who's with you. And remember, God has said to Moses, I am that I am. I'm all that you need, Moses. Even though obedience demands that you do something hard, I'm all that you need. I will be with you. So folks, if we're going to live our lives on the go with God, we need to know that obedience demands that we often do the hard thing in life. Now, there's a second thing we need to know. And the second thing is this. Submission to God demands that we do the right thing. If obedience demands that I do the hard thing, then submission to God means that I do the right thing. Moses is learning that God's will must always be done God's way. And he's serving God not on his own terms, but he's serving God on his terms, God's terms. And so that brings us to this verse, and and really these couple of verses, which are some of the most strangest in the entire book of Exodus. A passage that we might be tempted to kind of want to avoid due to the awkwardness of the content there. And we may even wonder, what's the purpose? What purpose does it serve really in the overall story of the Exodus in Moses' life? But let me tell you something. I am convinced that it illustrates a very important principle. Something that Moses is going to have to understand. Something that you and I are going to have to understand if we're going to walk with God. And we can't afford to miss the lesson here. And the lesson is submission to God demands that we do the right thing. Now, at some point, Moses has has been negligent. We know that verse 20 says that he and his family set out for Egypt from their home in Midian. He took his wife and his sons, and he has them ride on a donkey, which, by the way, you thought your last family road trip was difficult. Guarantee it wasn't as, as difficult as that one. Make you wonder how many times Gershom probably asked, are we there yet? No, we've not, we've not gotten out of uh, Papa Jethro's driveway, okay? We've got a long way to go. So he and his family, they're, they're, they're setting out. Uh, they're on their way. And yet verse 24 says that it was at a lodging place along the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And so a question may be, who does that word him refer to? What's the antecedent for that pronoun him? Is it referring to Moses? Some Bible scholars say, well, it's referring to the firstborn. Israel is my firstborn son. God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, he's going to have to say, if you don't let my firstborn son, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And so some Bible scholars say that that this is referring to the firstborn son of Moses then in verse 24. However, I believe that the larger context shows that this is referring to Moses. And I really believe that the lesson here, there were some things in Moses' family that he had not taken care of. And so now he's on the go with God, and God won't let him go one step further until he gets the situation rectified. 
So what was it that Moses had neglected? Well, evidently Moses had failed to see to it that his son bore the mark of the covenant. That might seem like an insignificant detail to us, but in the days of the patriarchs, in the Old Testament, this was the distinguishing uh, mark of membership in God's covenant people. It was the outward symbol of sonship that went all the way back to Abraham. And so the idea that's being conveyed here is this. If Moses intended to serve the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, then Moses has a covenant obligation to see to it that his own sons bore the mark of the covenant, which means that this is a very important preparation for the Exodus. You'll know later on when Israel observes the Passover, every male was required to bear the mark of the covenant. And so Moses had to set the example. If he's going to lead the people out of Egypt, it meant that he and his family had to keep the terms of the covenant because there was no way that Moses could lead God's covenant people with integrity apart from his own personal example. And so you see then the negligence of Moses, and that's followed up with the discipline of God. The one thing we see in verse 24, the whole situation, the one thing that's said about it, the Bible says the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And interestingly enough, it's, it's Zipporah, his wife, who steps in to intervene on his behalf. Now, the text doesn't say this, but, but possibly it means Moses became sick to the point of death. And Zipporah is spiritually discerning enough to realize that this illness was the disciplining hand of God. And folks, Moses is learning the painful lesson that God's threats are just as real as his promises. God is no respecter of persons. There's no such thing as halfway or partial obedience. And we may not think that details matter, but to God, every part of his plan matters. And this very thing is going to happen again at some point in Moses' life later on, and it's going to keep him out of the promised land. Uh, Numbers chapter 20, we're told that Moses strikes the rock when God clearly told him to speak to the rock. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Striking the rock versus speaking the rock. It's because God clearly gave him instruction and Moses disregarded the details of that instruction. And so the point is, God's will has got to be done in God's way. And, and, and this is something that the prophet Samuel really tries to reinforce with Israel's first king, Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. You remember when the instructions were to not spare the, the Amalekites? But Saul, he, he, he convinces himself that he's obedient, and yet he's spared Agag. He's spared the best of the, the people. He takes those spoils for himself when he was in clear violation of God's revealed will. And yet he had deceived himself into believing that he had been completely obedient. It's easy for us at times, oh listen, y'all better track with me right here. It's easy for us to sit on a church pew and convince ourselves that we've been completely obedient when it comes to the will of God in my life, my family's life, when in reality, we may just be playing some religious games. And God's not interested in us playing religious games with him. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Chuck Swindoll says of this, 
Moses wanted to be a man of God. And on his way, in the midst of his obedience, the Lord met him. And the encounter was deadly serious. The Lord said to him, Moses, here is one area nobody else may know about, but I know about it, and you haven't taken care of it. It could just be that the convicting hand of God is pointing out one area of disobedience in your life, even right now, that has not been surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to be on the go with God, then that's something that has to be settled now before you can take one step further in the will of God. So it's a serious matter, isn't it? Well, notice Moses' wife intervenes here, Zipporah. Her intervention is seen. It's only after she intervenes that he's restored to fellowship with God. She steps in and she does what was supposed to have been his responsibility all along. Which tells me, I wonder how many times men, our wives, have had to step up spiritually where we were nowhere to be found. AWOL, out to lunch, where maybe they've been making sure the kids were getting ready and getting to Sunday school, or they're seeing to it that they have a Bible, or leading them to Christ and walking them through the next step of baptism. You know what I really believe God is doing? I believe that God is raising up a generation of men within his church who are no longer content to simply be boys, who no longer worship their play and play at their worship, but he's raising up some men of God who understand what it means to be on the go with God, who long to have a passionate walk with God, and they know that submission to God demands that they do the right thing. So obedience to God means that I've got to do the hard thing. And submission to God means that I've got to do the right thing. Now, notice a third thing that Moses learns. If we're to live our lives on the go with God, then notice faithfulness to God demands that we simply do the next thing. The next thing. After this episode, verse 27 tells us that the Lord says to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So they have a reunion there. Now, as Moses is, is, is recovered, as he's well on his way to Egypt, uh, he meets Moses at the mountain of God, embraces him, and Moses tells Aaron all that had transpired with his call, all that he has to do. Aaron accompanies Moses then to Egypt, and, and, and at the end of chapter 4, what we see Moses doing, he's doing the very thing that he had feared to do all along, the very thing that he had been worried about. The people, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to receive me. They're not going to believe me. None of that actually happens, does it, once Moses gets to Egypt. He meets with the elders of the people. He communicates the will of God to Aaron. And the Bible simply says that the people believed and worship. Which tells me, folks, that 95% of the stuff we worry about never happens. <laughs> Now, some of you are worried because 5% of the stuff we worry about do happen, and you're worried about that 5%. But think about it. We often worry and fret over things that never really happen. And so, Moses, keep in mind, we have the benefit of looking back on redemptive history, and we know how the story's going to pan out. We know what's going to happen. We know that there are going to be plagues that come, and Pharaoh's going to harden his heart, and God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and, 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 and eventually God's going to bring his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. 
But God doesn't tell anything, uh, doesn't give any of those details to Moses. He doesn't mention anything about the frogs and the flies and the gnats and the death of the firstborn and all this, that, and the other. So obedience in Moses' life here means that he just simply needs to do the next thing. He needs to do what God's told him to do. Don't worry about all of the details. You simply do what I've told you to do and leave all of those details to me. That's why Peter says that we need to cast all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. And the word that he uses there in 1 Peter 5, 7 for anxieties translates a word that means uh, uh, choke, choked out, worries, concerns. It's the same word that Jesus uses to describe the worries and concerns of people that choke out the seed, the word from producing fruit in their lives. Oftentimes, God's called us to live our lives on the go with him, to walk with him, and we're so worried about this detail and worried about that that our lives are weighed down with a lot of needless anxiety. Life's anxieties come in a variety of forms. Sometimes they come in the form of difficult people that we deal with. Health concerns, needs in the lives of people that we love, but no matter the packaging that those anxieties come in, The scripture tells us how we're always to process those anxieties. We're simply to cast those anxieties upon the Lord. The psalmist says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Kind of reminds me of a story that I remember hearing about a missionary who was driving a truck through deep in the African interior years and years ago. And he came across a man who was carrying this heavy basket on his shoulders that was just filled with all kinds of stuff. Well, the missionary stopped uh, to give the man a lift, and and this particular man had never ridden in a vehicle before. This was a brand new experience, and so he climbed into the back of the truck, and the driver took off. But after a few minutes, the missionary glanced in his mirrors, and he saw the man struggling in the back of the pickup truck because he was still supporting the weight of that heavy basket on his shoulders. He didn't realize that the truck had enough strength to carry both him and his burden. I'm telling you, I think sometimes that 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 really describes us in life, doesn't it? Where, Where we're carrying around a basket of concerns. We're loaded down with anxiety and cares and concerns and worried about this outcome and worried about that outcome. We don't realize that that God is carrying us. And and by carrying us, he's also carrying our burden. The God that carries us can carry what burdens you and give you the strength to deal with it in the moment. And so what does faithfulness then demand of my life as a servant of God? That I just simply do the next thing. The next thing. Be obedient. Live your life one day at a time. Make decisions one decision at a time. Deal with people one person at a time. Process stuff one thing at a time. Now listen, if God can take me all the way to heaven, if God can see to it that I have eternal life and that I'm going to be with him for all of eternity to come, don't you think that he can take care of my life in the here and now? Don't you think that he can take care of those details and oftentimes the the, the minutia of his plan that we often are so worried about? So this passage of transition, Moses is on the go with God and he's learning that trusting God means that we do the hard thing in life. It oftentimes means that we we always need to do the right thing, but we simply need to do the next thing. 
And I don't know what that might be for you in your life. You, you, you think about Jesus and you think of how, how Jesus, all of this was always true of Jesus. Isn't it amazing how Jesus always did the hard thing that was required of him and the will of his Father? He didn't shy away from those difficult things that the will of God demanded. No, he went all the way to the cross. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He did the hard thing. And he always did the right thing. I think about my life and my own failures and where I've failed to do the right thing and where I've failed to pay attention to, to details as far as obedience to God is concerned. Thank God that I have a Savior in heaven who's perfect in every way, who fulfilled the law's demands to the nth degree with perfect righteousness. And now his righteousness has been credited to my account, given to me as a believer in Jesus. Yeah, Jesus did the hard thing, he did the right thing, and he always did the next thing that was required of him in the Father's plan. Now, I don't know what that might mean for you in your life personally. I don't know what the hard thing is for you at this particular moment. I guarantee you, you know what it is. <laughs> or the right thing. Maybe there's something in your life hidden beneath the surface something that you know needs to be rectified, some situation that you know needs to be made right, some issue. Maybe the hard thing for you is going to a brother or a sister who's wounded you, who's, who's offended you. They may not even know that, but the hard thing may be you going in a spirit of humility and love and saying, I just, just need to tell you something for the sake of a relationship. That's a hard thing to do. But obedience requires it, doesn't it? If we're going to be on the go with God, if we're going to walk with God, we've got to do hard things. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? It's a tough passage of Scripture. And I think if you look at it as something that's happening in transition in Moses' life, as he's in transition from Midian now to Egypt, the place where he's going to serve God and live out the calling of God upon his life. He's a man who's on the go with God, walking with God. And walking with God is not an easy thing. There'll be hills to climb, rivers to cross, obstacles to overcome. There'll be hard things to do when you're walking with God. But you know something? Jesus says that his grace is sufficient. For each hard thing that I've got to encounter in life, in my Christian pilgrimage, his grace and his mercy is more than sufficient for me in that hour. We can't live in the realm of what if. And keep in mind, the very thing that Moses has been fearful of, the people aren't going to listen, they're going to, that never happens. But they believe the word, they respond, and Moses gets great confirmation in his heart and in his life that he's in the will of God. What about you? I can tell you this, for some of you this morning, maybe the, the hard thing, the right thing, the next thing may be repenting of your sins and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Letting go of your pride, renouncing sin and all self-reliance and simply coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, be my Savior. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose again from the dead. Save me today, Lord. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, thank you that you've called us to a life of forward progress 
as the disciples of Jesus. And walking with you, God, means that there are times that we've got to do hard things, things that aren't easy. The life of faith is not a life of ease, but you've promised to be with us every step of the way. And Lord, thank you for your faithfulness and your grace and your mercy. God, give us the grace and the wisdom to do the right thing and the wherewithal to do the next thing that's required of us, whatever that may be. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said together, amen.